if you're able, please stand with me as we read God's word. I'll be reading from the ESV, uh, starting in Exodus chapter 4, verse 29, and going through Exodus 5, verse 23. And so it begins. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to, their burden, get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks they, shall, they, make, they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered all through the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now go and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce the number of bricks, your daily ta task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? 
For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Steve. And on behalf of the pastors, we do feel very appreciated here. Thank you all very much. You know, we live in a metrics-driven age. Uh, Almost everything, you think of any institution in which we can participate, almost all of it is... uh, comes down to some kind of measurable results uh, that a, a virtue that many of us go by, really a pragmatic virtue that is if it works, work it, and if it doesn't work, stop it. Uh, so whether it be, again, in our businesses or even with our sports, we love our analytics, and we say if we're being successful in what we do, uh, then it's going to be reflected in a bottom line. Now, I think that's a very appropriate way uh, to run a business, But the question we have to ask is what happens when that very American mentality, uh, that mentality of metrics and results, comes into the church? Is this a way to measure, is there a way to measure whether or not, you know, uh, God is happy with us, and can it be reflected uh, purely in a number? And I think... uh, Chapter 5 of Exodus is given, gonna, going to give us uh, some warnings and some cautions on doing just that. So by way of reference, what's happening here in Exodus chapter 5? Say big overview. God's redeeming a people for himself. That's what the whole history of the world's about. We enter the world saying no thanks to God. We're going to do life on our own. I'd rather not think about God. I'd rather think of myself. But God has put forth Jesus to say that we need to be reconciled, that we're sinners and that we need to repent of our sins and come into his family, right, his covenant community and represent him. That's the reason we were made. Uh, We're his creatures to give him glory, that God's redeeming a people. And at this point in history, that God's doing that dramatically by bringing his people out of Egypt. Uh, He's gonna rescue them from physical slavery, but also the bondage of sin to demonstrate, even to us here in Avon this morning, that God's buying back his people and he sets them on a path to live in a covenant relationship with him. Now, God's elected a man to lead, and he's a very unlikely fellow, isn't he? He uh, is an octogenarian uh, who's been shepherding in a rural place called Midian for 40 years. And he is to go to the most powerful man in the Mediterranean world, Pharaoh, and demand uh, really to preach to Pharaoh and to lead this great uh, redemption, to lead this great liberation of God's people. How is this going to work out? And starting in chapter 5, you're going to see, we've kind of traced it so far, but there's going to be a great face-off, right? Who's going to win? Pharaoh, the powerful man, the great politician, the tyrant, or is it going to be God? the God of the universe, and his chosen servant, Moses, and his brother, Aaron. And so we pick it up there where Moses and Aaron are commissioned. They're going to go to Pharaoh, and they're going to preach to Pharaoh. And what is this going to have to do with results, and how's God going to do this? So by way of a few observations today, again, we'll make three observations uh, with some cautions to the church and the way forward for our church. So first notice that Moses and Aaron's ministry uh, initially seems ineffective. I'd go so far as to say it's counterproductive. You might even say actually what it is that uh, on the human level, Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, and it's an absolute disaster. That they do what God tells them to do, and the whole thing 
turns to mush. So notice what they ask for, right? What God tells them to ask for initially seems like a very modest request. So chapter five and verse one, they go to Pharaoh, they say, they preach about the Lord and what the Lord wants, and what they, are, what they want is to allow Pharaoh to go to, into the wilderness for three days to celebrate a feast to their God. Say, that seems fairly reasonable. I mean, at this point, they're not calling to allow all the labor to leave, uh, but they're just saying, can we please go and worship our God for three days, probably on Mount Horeb, where God had spoken before. And this is very common, I'm told, in the ancient Near East, where people would worship their gods at these kinds of festivals. So what's going to happen? How's it going to go? Say, look at verse 2. Pharaoh's response, famous response, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh's response is blunt. It's quick. It's direct to the point. We get the impression that he didn't think about it. He didn't even allow it to run past between his ears. Pharaoh, or Moses, I have no idea who you're talking about. I might have heard of him, but why in the world would I... Listen to this God who you allege to be true. And this, friends, you remember last week is when we talked about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, God hardening his heart. Can you see the way God's done it? He's withheld his mercy and his grace from Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is doing what Pharaoh wants to do. And in that line, he basically says, I'm God. Why would I listen to who you're talking about when I call the shots around here? See, I I fear in that response, actually, um, that that's all too prevalent in our day, isn't it? You see, I think there's a Pharaoh saying, I've never, you know, he's not saying I've never heard of the God of the Israelites. Of course, he's heard of, he knows the Israelites have a God. What he's saying is, why would I pay attention to him? You know, if he's real at all. And so many in our time, I think, have that approach. They say, well, we know that there's some God that the Bible talks about, but why in the world would we allow him to call the shots? I'm the one who's supposed to call the shots. And that tension is really deep inside, I think, every human heart. To yield to the God of the universe, to do as he says, to come under him, to submit to him, or to do what Pharaoh does and says, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to do what I want to do. And Pharaoh, being the kind of man he is, Right, Not knowing the Lord, that's going to be a key phrase. He doesn't want to know the Lord. He doesn't know the Lord, not going to listen to the Lord. He really uh, takes this and interprets this as um, the laziness of the Israelites. Can you see that? Take a look at verse 8, right? That they're idle. The reason why they're asking for three days off to go worship their God is because they're lazy. They're idle. Or in verse 17, right? It's repeated twice. But Pharaoh said, you're idle. You're idle. These lazy people. And it's not only Pharaoh's refusal then, you can see that he makes life miserable for the Israelites. You see, up to this point, you've got a a basic building material at the time. The basic material is the mud brick. Say, I don't know if it'd be like the equivalent to the two by four or the cement block today. You say, you've got a basic building material in the ancient Near East, and what they would do is they'd mix the mud with straw, not because the straw would inherently stabilize, but when the straw broke down, so I'm told, I'm not a physicist, as you know, just a church historian, uh, but as that straw breaks down, it releases certain acids and makes that brick a lot stronger. So this is a very important process, right? You've got to put straw in the bricks so the bricks are strong. And up to this point, evidently, that the Egyptian labor supplied the straw for the bricks. So the Egyptians would bring the straw and then the Israelites would, would mold the bricks. 
So Pharaoh, attributing this request to laziness and idleness, says, I'm going to show you Israelites. No longer are the Egyptians going to supply the straw, but you, you yourselves, are going to have to harvest the straw to collect it, to bring it in. In other words, he, he takes the work up, uh, you know, I don't know, devils the work, a lot more work, but keeps the same quota of bricks, right? He demands the same quota of bricks. They say, this is an impossible thing. Say, I'm going to double the labor and demand the same results. And you think about, we'll pause here, and I think it's important to, to look at this, how much the Bible teaches us about leadership principles. And I know many in our congregation, in the way God has, in, in this church body, many of you, you lead a lot of people. You say, you notice, it feels like more weeks than not, I'm talking about you know, leadership principles out of scripture. Think of Pharaoh, this personality type when it comes to leadership. There's a couple things he doesn't at all value, right? He clearly doesn't value rest or the freedom of conscience to worship a God of your choosing, but rather is going to attribute a request like this to the laziness of his people, and he's going to be, respond by making life miserable for them. In other words, Pharaoh is this all-too-familiar controlling type of authority figure, isn't it? It's going to be on my terms. You're going to do what I want to do. I don't value your request for rest. I certainly don't value your request to, to worship the God of the Bible. And what you're going to do is do things on my terms, and I, notice, pragmatically and results-driven. I will get my bricks. And the bricks will keep coming because I have my building project. You see, uh, all too familiar. It's about measurables. It's about outcome. It's about the bottom line. Nothing else matters, but I'm going to control the people and make sure uh, that they do things on my term. Now, what's so interesting about this? Say Moses and Aaron's ministry then uh, seems to move things in the wrong direction. So here they are. They say, I'm commissioned to preach. They preach to Pharaoh and disaster results. And what's fascinating about this is that God told Moses that this would happen, didn't he? If you have a look back at 319, but I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by the mighty hand of God. Or how about 421, right? I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let you go. God told Pharaoh, you're going, or told Moses, you're going to preach, and the preaching's going to be a failure, and yet this is still so hard, still so hard on God's servants. So think about that for us. We know the outcome, don't we? We sang about it in that second sound. So we're going to feast on the Mount of Zion. So you have minimal biblical literacy. You say, yeah, Jesus won the great victory on the cross, uh, the perseverance of the saints, that nothing, nothing can take us from his hand, that we know that Jesus won the day, we're his, that he's the great victor. We know the outcome, and yet we still struggle because we've imposed, I fear, a results-based, measurable uh, outcome uh, on the church. Now, I remember my early days, you know, being off, off at college, and I was very into apologetics, as many, you know, are, and I'm studying all the great apologists, and I got all my arguments, you know, ready. I, I string them all together, and I go to my non-believing friends, and I unpack the argument, say, I memorized the argument perfectly. I gave it to them just as, I, just as the apologist taught me. There it was. Now, don't you believe? Say, no, we don't believe. In fact, uh, that's weirder than I thought before. And... Uh, <laughs> You say, what, what happened there? I thought that if I was clever enough and crafty enough and was able to do uh, just the right things, uh, that, that all would be, uh, you know, there'd be a positive outcome. You say, not so in God's economy. Again, Moses and Aaron preach faithfully. They do what God commanded them to do. 
The consequence, far from life getting easier for the people of God, life becomes more miserable and things seem to go in the opposite direction. What do we do with that? I think then bold heading number two. Importantly now, we need to be careful how we define success as a church. Now, lurking behind this chapter, the behavior of the Israelites and, quite frankly, Moses and Aaron, uh, there's a a built-in formula uh, that we put on our faith, and it's this. If God is working among us, our lives will become easier. You see how that's what they expect, isn't it? Say, okay, God's going to deliver us. Uh, We've got the preachers. If that's really what God wants, then we're going to be Uh, everything's going to be fine. Now, this formula, uh, as far as I can tell, has always been an issue among God's people. You can read, say, something like Psalm 73. Actually, read a number of psalms, and and this is called the the problem of the prosperity of the wicked. You know, the, the famous theological, the prosperity of the wicked. What it means is this. It says, God, David will say things like this. There are people who really hate you, God, and yet they've got a lot of nice things, and their families are really nice, and everything they touch seems to go really well, and here I am doing what I'm supposed to be doing, and my life's very hard and uncomfortable. Why, God? You see how that's taking a a theological formula that's man-made and imposing it on the God of the Bible. So it's, in other, it's saying something like this, God, when I do my part, I expect you to do your part. And your part means making my life a little bit easier. So it's formulaic, it's controlling, and really it's a, it's a works-based orientation to the faith, right? I do my part, then God consequently will do his. I expect that if God is in it, my life's gonna become easier and the people of God are going to be happier, that our burdens will be uh, you know, alleviated, and that's uh, the way that it ought to go. Say, not so. Now, inevitably, that kind of theology, that bad theological formula, again, I do my part, God will then owe me, ultimately results in something like verse 22. You see, Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil? You see how that happens? That the people then turn against God. They have a bad theological presupposition that being faithful means an easy, more comfortable life. When that doesn't result and the church faces hard things, we blame God for that, or we even doubt his existence. So you say, why is this, um, I think, more of an acute problem in our own day than maybe in past times? And one thing might be the emphasis we put on comfort and safety. Say, you know this term safetyism? Have you heard of that? It's from a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. In other words, the book documents how how safety and comfort have become, you know, this is the currency in which we trade, right? The highest value that I have is my own comfort and safety, and if my comfort and my safety are ever threatened, you know, I gotta get out, something's terribly wrong. And you look at the people of God and how God uses them, say, is that really, am I smuggling that into the Bible? Do we smuggle a kind of safetyism into our faith to say, God, you know, if you're really in it, then my life's going to be comfortable and I'm going to be safe. Say, the Bible never, never promises God's people a kind of earthly comfort. It promises us victory. It absolutely promises us victory. It doesn't promise a life of ease and a life of success, that everything that we do is going to turn to gold and that, uh, you know, everything will just uh, go the way that we want it to do. Just maybe the opposite that as we walk by faith, 
and do what God wants, that God in his good time will give us burdens to carry, but always supply us with the grace that we need. So I come back to that question. Can you see how this same logic, that same formula that we impose on, on God can actually be detrimental in the opposite direction? What I mean by that is what happens then if, say, in our church's case, say, we're growing, we have more butts and bucks, God must be very happy with us, don't you think? I mean, look at this. This is fantastic. You see how that can be just as dangerous. We've worked the same formula. It's going great. God, you know, look at this. We, again, but it's a workspace system, and it's really, if you think about it, a prosperity gospel. We do what we need to do, and God will bless us. And friends, we have to be very, very careful with that because you have an example in Exodus chapter 5 of the preachers being faithful and life becoming a lot harder. And quite frankly, this could be the case for us in the future. We're not promised comfort. We're not promised ease. We're promised victory. And we're promised that God will give us grace to sustain us through whatever we face. So I think that's the uh, appropriate orientation for the church, right? The orientation for the church isn't around metrics or analytics or growth. The appropriate orientation for the church is settling under the grace of God and channeling uh, the highs and lows as God would supply, which I think brings us then to our third bold heading. So notice the moves that we've made. Moses and Aaron's ministry is counterproductive. It, on the human level, moves things in the wrong direction. People are, are less well off physically. So that might tell us that we need to be careful how we define success as a church and think more about health and honoring Jesus and talking more of his grace and channeling whatever would come our way. That might be a better mental orientation. And then thirdly, what Moses in particular teaches us is that we need to maintain balance in times of praise and in times of blame, times of praise or times of criticism. Notice how chapter four ends. You see that? So here, this is, this is what you'd call a spiritual high. And the pe- So here they preach to the people of Israel, and the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he'd seen their affliction, they bowed down their heads and worshiped. You said, this is a great triumph. I mean, this is the, the preacher's greatest moment, right? Say, so everybody's on the same page. They've recognized God is working. We're bowing our heads. We're worshiping. What could go wrong? Take a look then at the end of chapter 5. <laughs> Moses turned to the Lord... Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you, God, have not delivered your people at all. I love that, at all. That really was needed, right, to God. So you haven't done anything. So what happened? You notice how, how fickle we can be? This is fantastic, God. had a really good Sunday. Great, you must be very pleased with us. Say, just a short time later, say, we could be facing a much different situation. Oh, God, you must not be in it. In fact, God, maybe you're evil. Say, I guess what I'm saying is we ought not be like that. What we need in a results-based culture in the highs and lows is a kind of steadiness that comes from having Christ as our anchor. You know what else speaks to me? Probably you too. Notice what the foremen say to, to Moses. The foremen are interesting. You see, they got a, they, they've been appointed to a position of authority. So you got the Egyptians. They pick out certain Israelites to be the foremen over the Israelite slave labor. 
So they've got this, uh, you know, privileged position, so to speak. But then all of a sudden, Pharaoh holds them accountable, and they're, they're beaten. The foremen are beaten. And what did the foremen say to Moses and Aaron? They said, the Lord look on you, Moses, and judge you, because you've made us a stench. Literally, you've made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and you've put a sword in their hand to kill us. These foremen come to Moses, and they call down curses on this guy. They said, the Lord judge you, Moses. You're an inept leader. You, you've not heard from God. Uh, you, you can't get anything. In fact, what you've done, Moses, if you, you've equipped the Egyptians even more. You, you put a knife in their hand, and all this blood is going to be on your hands. Curse you, Moses. See, that's a very hard thing. I know all of us, part of what it means to be human is to have times where we face criticism or sharp remarks and sometimes for our faith. And I just have you think about Moses here, right? The spiritual high, he's got the signs. He was given the signs. He's got this amazing calling. God supplied him with what he needs. He's given him an audience of Pharaoh. So there's a lot of good things. But then here are some very, very hard things. How do you stay steady in that high and that low? You see, Moses is really rattled, isn't he? You see what he wants to do there, verse 22. I say no other way than to say it like this in our language, that he wants to quit. I'm done. I don't want the burden of the ministry anymore. I don't want this calling anymore. I thought that if I preached that my life was going to be easy. I thought that if I was a Christian and I represented God in the marketplace and did family devotions with my family, come on, God, this last month I've really made an effort to do family devotions and my life's not getting easier. Uh, why are you doing this to me? Say, that's what Moses is reasoning. And we can see, and especially we'll see next week, how that is not good reasoning, right? That God's timing, right? He's going to use this to his glory, that he will supply Moses with all that he needs to do this task. I'm going to leave you with two examples on this uh, idea. One secular, and then one more important from the Bible. But I was listening this week, you know, who's been in the news a lot is Urban Meyer, um, who, you know, was the coach of the Buckeyes and now the Jacksonville Jaguars and he's made some bad decisions but the commentators on the radio were saying what's interesting about Urban Meyer's personality is that when, when his team loses he, he physically can't handle it if you've ever seen the guy and I apologize some of you don't like sports but I thought this worked really like he, he gets emotional he crouches down the man almost he looks ill when his team loses in other words he, he, you can almost see him on TV going like this on the highs and lows he just that's the personality and then the commentator said this they said you know it's the exact opposite and he went to a different name he said uh, he pulled out the name Larry Brown and I remembered Larry Brown as he's an NBA coach a basketball coach different sport and what the commentator said is that Larry Brown had this ability that when his teams were doing well he kind of stayed steady and when his teams did poorly he would say something like well we've, we've got some stuff to work on it's a long game uh, we, we, we got to take the long view here and I thought that's exactly, to me, the Christian life, that we can be like the end of chapter four to the, the end of chapter five to say, am I riding the highs of lows, you know, physically sick by what's coming my way, and I'm very high here and very low here, or am I the kind of person that just says, you know, God, sometimes there are moments of sweetness for your church, in which case we should not give credit to ourselves. Sometimes there are hard things in the life of the church and hard things in our lives, but God, I still trust you all the more. 
that I don't want to fall into the trap of playing a results-based game on when I'm called to be faithful. The more serious example, you probably know where I'm going with this. What better example of this kind of trust is our Lord, the Lord Jesus? Think of the last week of his life. He comes in a week before his death. What are the people doing? Here's the Messiah. They're putting down the palm leaves. Say, this guy can do no wrong. This is the politician to lead us back. And a week later, he was on the cross. The high and the low, what what did he do? Trusted his heavenly father. Refused to play the results-based game, but rather they say, God, I trust you. You're gonna use this. You will supply me. Friends, today, Exodus chapter five to me calls us to a kind of spiritual fortitude in a metrics age, in a quantifiable age, in a way where we want to manufacture things, it calls us back to a kind of uh, steadiness, right? A fortitude to say we're going to hang in there because we know that God is in it, and that is what our culture so desperately needs. I know I talked to a few here today, said this is um, not really used to thinking about stuff like this, and in fact, you'd say, I don't really know what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Um, What's this about? Say, the reason why Christians make a big deal about Jesus is because we believe we know him to be God's son, right? The eternal second person of the Trinity. In other words, you look at something like this and say, I'm actually a lot like Pharaoh. That I'm not, you know, I'm like the guy who wants to control everything and quite frankly, you know, to be selfish. And you play that out and say, God, I've really, my life hasn't gone the way I want it to go. In fact, there are some things that I'm really embarrassed of that I feel guilty about. What's going to happen when I'm called home to meet you, my maker. You say, God, put forth Jesus in history, right, to say there's a way to be reconciled with God, to, to say, Lord, I am, I am a sinner. I'm like Pharaoh here, and I, 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 I do. I ignore you. Who's, the, who's God? I'm my God. And we see in Jesus that humble servant to say, I can repent of my sin. They give the gift of repentance, say, God, I don't want to do life on my own terms anymore, away from you, but I want to come to you through what you've provided, the only way, through surrendering to the kingship of Jesus to say, Jesus, I, I repent, I wanna, I wanna start fresh, I wanna have my life in you, that I believe that you've cleansed me with your own blood on the cross. That anyone today say, you don't know Jesus, I plead with you, say, don't be like Pharaoh and harden your heart, but rather to respond to the prompting of the spirit in your, the spirit of God in your life to say, you know what I do, I, I do, I wanna surrender to Christ to be right with God, to turn my life over him. I need that kind of steadiness that we've been talking today, not riding the highs of lows in an anxious age, but rather to say, Jesus, I've got you and that's enough. You're my anchor. You're everything. And church family, for us, every temptation, every temptation is to reduce our faith to quantifiable things, to put God in a box. God, we're doing our part. You make my life easy. Say Exodus 5 would say no, that God promises us victory, that he'll never let us go, that he'll be with us, and we need that spiritual fortitude for the times that we're facing and, quite frankly, the times that we will face. So I'll pray as you think about this. Lord, we do call for a steady faith in a results-based age, that we do think like those ancient Israelites, like Moses and Aaron, hey, I, I did what you told me to do. Now you make it easy on me. Say, Lord, sometimes you put your people through very difficult things, sad things, onerous things, criticism, 
hard things in the family, in the workplace, whatever it might be, and help us not to do what Moses did in verse 22. God, are you even in this? Or maybe you're not good. But rather to see you work through that. You supply us with what we need. Help us to be even people, Lord, that we're never as good as others might say we are, and we're never as bad as the critics, but rather our identity would be in the Lord Jesus alone, that he's king, that he is the head of his church, and that as we follow steadily, uh, as you would have it, as we're found faithful, that you would have your way, and that your kingdom would advance through the people of this church. For Christ's sake, amen.